guys, let's jump in though, all right? We're in this series, Kingdom Confidence. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand, and one of the ushers will pass one to you. Last week, we started this series talking about how our hope and our faith in Jesus changes everything. It doesn't just change our beliefs. It doesn't just change, you know, the ideas that we have. It changes our attitude. It changes our disposition. It changes, ultimately, the way that we also behave, this faith, this hope that we have in Jesus. And so, again, even realizing some of the trends in our society, and you might be awakened to some things that kind of shock you uh, tomorrow night, uh, that doesn't mean we trade away our hope. That doesn't mean we trade away our faith and our confidence. And in fact, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be addressing some of those areas as we go through this series. But last week, our study was all about the sufficiency of God's grace for us as individuals. And my wife, she had a great comment. She said, man, it's like you were preaching the gospel to Christians. And I said, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly what I was trying to do. Because when we get the forgiveness that's for us and the cleansing that's taken place and the relationship that we now enjoy with God, and we understand our inheritance in the future that will not perish, spoil, or fade. And when we feel and sense and understand the power of God in the present that shields us by the Holy Spirit, man, we can face anything. We can face anything that's going to come at us. The next thing that's going to come after that, with that calm, cool, clear headed, spirit filled obedience to Jesus that is called upon each of us. So we started on the personal level. This week, I'm going to go on a bit of a grander scale, but that doesn't mean that by the time we finish today that there won't be a very clear and personal application for every single one of us. This morning is all about our kingdom confidence derived from the power of unity that we have in the church. Kingdom confidence derived from the power of unity that God has given us, the church. Now, I'm going to get to that topic in a moment, but I want to start by going in a different direction, kind of working my way this way. Last week, you know, I hadn't preached in six weeks. I felt like I put in 30 ingredients into a stew that only needed 20. And this week, I've decided to put 35 in a stew that only needed 20. So I'm still warming up, guys. I'm still warming up. But let's start over here. I want to start by reminding us of one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus, which likely means it's also one of the least practiced teachings of Jesus. Very simple. Very difficult, and maybe least practiced. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's recorded another way in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus taught, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. It's quite the challenge, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Very clear, but man, that is not, that is not straightforward. If you could imagine a world where enemies treated each other this way, they, they prayed for each other, they did good to one another. I mean, we'd be borderline getting a little close to like heavenly territory, right? Wouldn't the world just be a completely different place? But unfortunately, a lot of people take this teaching of Jesus and they leave it as some heavenly ideal. But to prove that he meant for it to be applied, Jesus himself prayed for his enemies as they were crucifying him upon the cross. So with one 
teaching, Jesus effectively eliminates the presence of enemies in our lives. Poof. It's just like that. They're gone. I mean, people will present themselves in our lives as our enemies. They will posture themselves in our lives as our enemies. But we're to respond how? Not as if they are our enemies. We're to bless and we're to do good and we're to pray for everyone. And effectively, we have no enemy except now just one enemy. And he's not human. He's Satan. So when you look at society, I mean, this is how it shifts for us as Christians. This is one of the exceptional things about being a Christian. You can look at all the different groups in society, right? You've got the liberals and the progressives, and you've got the fundamentalists, and you've got the far right. And, and you know, you could look at anyone. You've got the upside down. You've got the backwards, sideways. I don't know what you got. You've got all these different groups, right? And everybody wants to make them out to be the enemy. They're not the enemy. None of them are the enemy anymore, at least as far as our behavior, as far as the way that we relate to these individuals and groups. You've got your coworkers, and you've got your family members, and you've got your roommates, and you've got these politicians, and you've got these people from these other nations, and it's like, wait, poof, in one teaching. No longer are any of these people our enemies, functionally speaking, in the way that we relate to them. Again, we have only one enemy, and that is Satan himself. What a fundamental shift in worldview with just a very simple word. Jesus has changed everything in our relationships. Now think about this. If that's our ethic, the standard that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us with enemies, what is our ethic and standard for how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the community of God? If we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and do good to those who oppose us, and that's the ethic and that's the standard, and we can't disavow that, what do you think the ethic and the standard is, the expectation is, for the way that we would relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the church community? That's why the Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light, anyone who claims Jesus, anyone who claims that they understand who God is through the gospel, but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. We're called to even love our enemies, and then you, as a believer, are now hating your brother or sister. You're in the darkness. You're completely lost. You don't have a clue what you're even about. There are many benefits, and I proclaim the benefits many times of not having a smartphone, of not being on social media, da 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 da, da. I don't need to preach that sermon right now. There are some downfalls. One is not having a GPS, not having maps. And, you know, I, I print the Google Maps. I still use MapQuest. It still exists. I print it out. Gen Zers have no idea what that is. It was a lifeline. It was the first thing. You print it out. I'm, I'm, you know, buying something, you know, on Craigslist in L.A. L.A. is a giant maze. I don't know my way around L.A. I print out these maps. And, you know, I get all the way there. I'm following all the directions. And then I see the last page didn't print or I didn't take it with me. I'm in the middle of L.A. I've traveled an hour and a half to get to this area and this location. I know I'm, I can feel I'm within, you know, a half mile of that coffee table. 
But I have no idea how I'm going to find it. I'm lost. And, and I mean, I don't think many of you have had that experience near recently. You know, you've never been lost anymore. It's very concerning. And, you know, there were times, there's been at least two times, I've driven a very substantial distance, and I've just had to drive home. I don't have an option. I don't have an option. The phone's dead. I can't call anyone. Da, 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 da. And I, I, that's my life. I've saved a lot of time not being on social media, though, so it's a net win, okay? Different <laughs> sermon. But John is saying that about Christians. He's saying, you're, you're lost. You don't have a clue where you're going. And the worst part is, the next level of it is, you don't even know that you're lost. Because you're claiming to be in the light. You're claiming that you think you can see. But you're, you're, you're off the reservation. I mean, you don't even know where you are. That, that is the state of people right now who are in this place of hatred toward their brothers and sisters, even as they claim Christ. And now, we've done a First John study. It was many years ago. But we defined that this word for hate here is not like you want to kill someone, not like you despise someone. It's that you just think less of them. You, you've demeaned them. You've made them second rate. So the person who berates, belittles, and demeans their brother or sister has as much in common with God as the darkness does with light. John is saying, if you make another believer second rate, you have nothing in common with the gospel message that you say you believe. Now, I don't want to couch these teachings like loving our enemies or even loving our brothers and sisters at times as simple and straightforward. It is very simple and straightforward to understand. Jesus taught it. It's very clear there in Matthew and in Luke about loving our enemies. John's very clear here. It doesn't take a degree in theology to figure out what is being called for, what the standard and the ethic is. But it's not simple or straightforward in practice. And it never has been. It wasn't for 2,000 years. Think about what happened when the church was created. Imagine it's sort of like this. Like, we've got this country. We've got the United States of America. And we've got this other country, Russia. And we've got all this, like, hostility that's constantly brewing over my lifetime, at least. And it's gotten more intense recently. And, you know, there's all these threats going back and forth. And Biden's on TV saying, don't use nuclear weapons. I mean, that's just on the news yesterday, guys. Don't, don't even think about the entire world being destroyed. We're having to talk about that right now over this proxy war that's happening, you know, basically in Ukraine. Now, imagine these two nations with all their hostilities and the history and the, and the, you know, words that are going back and forth suddenly today became one nation. And their people and our people just came together and we were one. And we were in the same area, and we were in the same location, and we've got to work through now our differences of language, our differences of culture, our differences of history, and the way that we interpret history. And now you're, you know, eating borscht and pierogi, and you don't like those things, you know. I think pierogi's pretty good, but, you know, we've got to go through all that stuff together. And there's that tension, and I want it my way, you want it your way. Now imagine it's not just the U.S. and Russia that came together overnight. Imagine it's also China. It's also Saudi Arabia. We all become one country tomorrow, and we've got to work through all the differences and barriers between us as we negotiate being one people together. Do you realize that is what Jesus did 
when he brought Jews and Gentiles together, when he brought Jews, and that is all the nations that are not Jewish together, and made them one family in the church, one, one family, dysfunctional family at times, but one family in the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. The verse will be on the screen. This is the work that Jesus did, bringing Jews and Gentiles together, Jews and non-Jews together. Paul writes, verse 11, chapter 2, Ephesians. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. we got a big difference in culture right there in tradition, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, before the time of Christ, before Christ's appearing, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. That is all the promises of the Old Testament. Without hope, and you are without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Consequently, this is what's happened. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So to summarize what Paul is saying here in Salvation History, we've got Jesus as the Messiah and Savior of the world emerging out of the Jewish people. But he's this fulfillment of a promise in the Old Testament that there would be one from Abraham's line that would be a blessing not just to the Jews, but to all nations. And so in verses 11 to 14, Paul is recalling that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were excluded from God's promises. They didn't have a relationship with God. That was until the appearing of Jesus. When he arrived, he brought them near. And there was all these barriers, right? Because there's the Old Testament law and all this religion and traditions that they have to take up. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to fulfill the law and I'm going to set aside its regulations and commands so you can come right in and have a relationship with God. And so his blood, Jesus' blood shed on the cross, which we talked about last week, was sufficient to bring the Jews to God, but also these Gentiles who believed. They were all then reconciled to their one Father in heaven, filled with the one Spirit, and consequently, they were then also reconciled with each other. So Paul very poignantly refers to Jesus, the person, as our peace, our wholeness with each other. In his one physical body, he reconciled all. He took all the groups of people in the world and gave them access to God. And he took all the groups of people in the world and he gave them access to each other. He is our peace. In his body, his one body, he reconciled them all. My wife, since we got back from our trip, has been very into cooking and baking. And I'm not complaining. 
at all. I enjoy this very much. And so she's been trying all kinds of things, and she creates these healthy little glob cookie things. You know, they, they, don't, they don't look like a traditional cookie. They are good. They are good. My, my taste buds, I think, have changed. I am getting a bit healthier as I need to be as I get older here. But, you know, and, and I don't know a lot about baking. I don't know a lot about cooking. But I do know that when you're baking, you need some sort of a binder for the ingredients that's going to hold it all together. Uh, you know, you need flour or you need eggs. You know, if you're gluten-free, you need psyllium husk or something fancy like that. I don't know what you need. Somebody knows what that is in Orange County for sure. You need, you need a binder because if you don't have that binder, you can put all the ingredients in a pot. They won't stick together. They, they, won't, they won't stay. You know, without that binder, you, you touch it and just like that. Effectively, that, that is Jesus amongst the people of God. He is our peace. Apart from the presence of Jesus, there is no reason why any of us relate to each other. There is no reason for this gathering. There's no reason to know one another. There's no reason to work together. He's our binder. If you take Jesus out of our relationships with each other, it goes to nothing. But Jesus brought us together. You know, he did not go to the cross simply to invite you into a personal relationship with God. That was a popular message, a popular tagline from, I don't know, the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, you're going to believe in Jesus for this personal relationship with God. Yes, 100%. You have access to the Father by the same one Spirit as everybody else. But what was Jesus' purpose here in Ephesians? He wanted to create one new humanity out of the two by doing away with the hostility that existed between people, groups. Having done that, Paul writes in verses 90 to 20, and, and essentially I'm paraphrasing here, he's saying, do you understand your relationship to each other now? You're fellow citizens of God's household. You've got the nations that you came from. You've got the traditions. You've got your likes and preferences and all that. But you're primarily now not from your nations. You're primarily part of God's kingdom. You are citizens of this one household. And your partnership is this act of being built together into this one spiritual temple of worship to God in the world. As we're going through all these different states, nine states on this tour, every little town has a First Baptist this, and a First Lutheran that, and a First Methodist that. I don't understand the numbering scheme. Whoever came up with this thing all across the country that we had to put, we're the first this, we're the first that church, we're the first, I'm going to change branches to the last Christian church of Huntington Beach. Like, <laughs> forget the number scheme. What are these numbers? There's no first, there's no second, there's not multiple firsts, there's, there's one you understand that in Ephesians? He's using singular language. There's one household of God. There's one body in which they're all reconciled. There is one spiritual temple that is being built up as a house of worship. And we're all part of that one church. Now that's all well and good, right? Again, we know the ethics. We know the commands and the teachings. It's simple and straightforward, and we even know now the magnitude of what Jesus has done is the backdrop. You know, these, these wonderful heavenly ideals, and that's what we leave them as. They're like little, you know, ornaments and tchotchkes on the mantle. It's like, yeah, cool truth. But it doesn't find any grounding in our practice and in our lives. 
because there's so much resistance. What happens when you put a bunch of people together? I mean, this is great on a piece of paper. Thank you, Paul. Look what Jesus has done. And then when you actually see what Jesus has done, you've got to stick all these different people in a room together. And they've got all these different histories, and they've got all these different traditions, and they've got all these different preferences. It was a mess. It was a mess. It's still a mess. It's still a mess. So you have all these passages, some that deal with theology of the great things Jesus has done, and then you have all these other passages that are like in a roundabout way just trying to deal with all the tension that existed 2,000 years ago as these people tried to be fellow citizens among the people of God. And a lot of the teachings deal with it in a roundabout way. We're going to go to one that just hits it head on, Romans chapter 14. Because the Roman church, it's a metropolitan area, right? It's, it's got all these different cultures in it, and the church is so diverse in that area. And they're arguing and arguing incessantly. I have the most spiritual diet. I observe the most spiritual holidays and traditions. And they're all like pointing at each other going, you're not really Christian. You're not really Christian. Christian is my way. And I get it. People are getting angry. I would be angry if someone told me I couldn't eat meat. Th- that's my red line. My red meat line. Right, like, you tell me I can't eat meat anymore. I'm angry instantly. Okay, I, I, you you touched a sore subject for me. Right, I'm, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but I mean these are the dividing lines. Some are vegetarians, and some are eating meat, and some are observing these holidays, and they're trying to work out this pecking order. And Paul says this in verse 10 of Romans chapter 14: You, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us individually, Paul's saying, will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind. Choose. Everybody today, just choose. Not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. That's dealing with food or practices. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Love is this ideal that we have. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. The application, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And it could be anything. For them, it's food. For them, it's these different sacred days and holidays. You can say, do not destroy the work of God for your preferences over how you sing songs in worship. Do not destroy the work of God for the way that you interpret that single passage of the Scriptures. Do not destroy the work of God, and I get a little PTSD thinking about it, over your feelings about masks and vaccines. I mean, don't you just get like a little bit like, oh, no, not going back there again. But it revealed something about the maturity of the body of Christ that those things were getting in the way of the work of God. And if that's where our maturity remains, 
It may not be those same things, but it's going to be something else that comes up again and again and again that destroys, that works to destroy the work of God. And what is the work of God? I described it earlier. Christ gave his body and reconciled all, whether they are right or they're wrong, or as Paul's saying, they're more right and less right, or they're just different. It doesn't matter. He gave his body and he reconciled all of them to himself. We've all been brought together. He is our peace. So who are you or I to stand in the way to work against what Jesus worked for? Who are you? Who am I to work against what Jesus worked for? My son, my youngest son, he's a year and a half. He has this destroyer mentality. Never had such a destructive child. You know, it it just tears up the whole house, climbs everywhere, grabs everything, throws everything. We play blocks together. It's not even playing blocks. I build, he destroys. He loves it. And it's okay because he's a child. But there's something in us that's fed, that is of the flesh, that is of sin, that gets gratified when we destroy things, when we tear things down. That works a muscle in us that just feels right in all the wrong ways. And there was so much destruction that we've seen. Remember Jesus' prayer before the cross. I pray that they would be one. Think about that in the context of what we know from Ephesians, what Jesus was doing through the cross. Through the cross... He was making a way for all of us to be one. And he was praying, essentially, that God would affect in us his purpose on the cross. I'm going to go make everyone one. Now, Father, would you make them realize they are one so they participate as one, integrated with what I have done? So now who of us, me, you, has a preference or a misgiving or a hurt that's more powerful than the prayer of Jesus? Who of us would interrupt that prayer? Jesus, I pray that they would be one. And we say, no, 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 Jesus, don't finish that prayer. No, I've got something here. We've got a difference of opinion about this passage, so you can't finish that prayer. Okay, we're not going to be one. Okay, we've got something else going on here that's more important. Jesus is praying. I pray that they may be one. Wait, Jesus, do you know what this person did to me? Do you know how this person treated me? Who of us has a preference or a misgiving as more powerful than the prayer that Jesus prayed? And he said, this is how the world is going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. So it's not just about this work of unity that he's won for us. This is the way the world is going to come to know him. So when we talk about this reconciliation that Jesus has brought, this peace that he's brought through the cross, this is the work of God. Unity is the work of God. That's why you get a teaching like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Whoever destroys the temple of God, that is that one temple that is being built together, God will destroy that person. It's one of the most unflinching, harshest words in the entire New Testament. But you understand why. Because to destroy God's temple is to oppose God himself. But to fight for God's temple, to fight for unity and agreement, 
to bear up with one another in relationships, to forgive one another, to heal. That is joining with the primary work of God. That is joining with what Jesus did on the cross. That is the fulfillment of what he prayed for. That is the truest kingdom work there is. So how in the world did we end up in the position we're in thousands of years after the time of Christ where the church today is endlessly divided? How did we end up here? Why is this message being preached to a few hundred believers in this corner of the kingdom rather than being shouted from the rooftops of the largest platforms of the largest churches all around the world? Why isn't this prerogative number one to right the chiefest wrong that has existed in the church through all history. And we can write it simply by coming together. At best, you know, congregations of Christians through the history books have, have ignored each other. At best, they've just ignored each other. At worst, they've competed for attendance. They've condemned one another. Historically, Christians have gone to war against each other over their beliefs about Christ. All of it hasn't furthered the church of the kingdom, but gone against the work of God. And who is it that opposes the work of God? Satan. That's Satan's greatest victory, keeping us divided. Satan's greatest victory is keeping us divided. And we have so much within our power and grasp to upend that, to change that reality. By all accounts, there are 210 million Christians in America. That number's going to change, likely. I'm going to share about that tomorrow night. 210 million self-proclaimed Christians right now. 2.38 billion in the world. There is no nation that is larger. There is no lobbying group with more power and influence than that group if they're together. There is no more money and talent and resources than in that collection of people if they could find agreement. So is it not ingenious to keep us squabbling, to keep us talking about meaningless things, to keep us judgmental, we're just so lazy and distracted we can't bother to even gather together anymore when the power for unity is ours the whole time. It's astonishing the things that we let get in the way of that unity, insignificant things and even substantial things, but is anything more substantial than the power of Jesus? Even the substantial things, anything more substantial than the power of Jesus? For he himself is our peace. What is our peace, guys? Is our peace when you and I agree on every item of theology and interpretation and practice? Is that our peace? When we're all in agreement, then we're at peace with each other. You know, is it when uh, nobody gets their feelings hurt anymore? You know, that, that, that's when we finally have peace. Nobody's sensibilities, you know, and all, all of our preferences about the songs we're going to sing and the way I'm going to preach from the scriptures, we all agree that's our peace. No, he is our peace. He has removed the hostility so no one can bring it back. He's broke down the walls and the barriers between us so no one can build them back. The only building project we have here is what leads to peace and mutual edification. This is where the kingdom confidence, guys, is. Wherever you and I differ, it doesn't matter. Because I'm going to give an account to Jesus and you're going to give an account to Jesus. For all those things that we differ about. And he is able to make me stand. And he's able to make you stand. And we will worship together forevermore. 
That's kingdom confidence. In all the differences, he can make me stand, he can make you stand, and we will worship together forevermore. It's about entering into our relationships with one another from that as our starting place, from the finishing place. That's our starting place. With kingdom confidence in our relationships with each other, the next time we've got something we're arguing about, the next time there's a misgiving here or there, we're starting from we will worship together forevermore, side by side. We start from there instead of human weakness. Human weakness takes the speck of wrong in you and puts it right here so I can't see you, I can't see what Jesus has done, and I end up living in darkness. I have three applications for us this morning. Number one, make unity your first priority. Make unity your first priority. It's not number two. It's not number three. It's not number four. It's not high up on the list. It's your first priority. I'm not telling you to do this, and we don't do this as branches. Do you understand? We do this. We do this with our platform, just like you would do this from your platform with the life that you have. We give financially to a church that meets down the hill in the park. We do the accounting and finances for one that meets downtown. When they have a building campaign, our neighboring church next door to our office, we gave to the building campaign for that church. There's two church planners who reached out to me while I was away on sabbatical. They've moved to Huntington Beach. They want to plant churches here. If we can help them, we're going to help them. You know, that's why three pastors came in from other local congregations to preach while I was gone. That's why we're leading Serve City. We're, you know, there's, there's 15 churches collaborating together. And next month in October, it's going to be the first time the city collaborative movements of Huntington Beach and the other 33 cities of Orange County are going to be getting together. Those who are getting together in their cities are going to be getting together looking at Orange County together. That's the platform that we have that we're going to leverage toward unity. God has brought us together. And you actually being here on a Sunday morning is part of you living into that unity. He didn't save you into this personal relationship. Anyone who says, I'm in my personal relationship with Jesus, I don't need the church, isn't listening to the voice of Jesus. Because the voice of Jesus, all his teachings, everything that you see in the New Testament would mean that if they're following, they're being pushed back into the church whether they like it or not. Because he's brought us together. And he hasn't just brought us near each other. He has made us one. So you and I have to make peace with each other. What did Jesus say about offering your sacrifice in the temple? He said, "Mm, you realize you've got something against somebody. Set down your offering. Go make it right. Then come back and offer your sacrifice of worship. Why did he say that? Because unity is the number one priority. I still can't believe there are probably families ripped apart for the last you know, several years over some of the discussions that took place and they've never healed. There are congregants who probably didn't even actually disagree with me. They just perceived that they disagreed with me and they'll never speak to me again. How? How is that even possible? Now, if those realities exist in your own life, from your marriage on down, through those relationships, make unity your number one priority. He didn't just bring us near to one another. You need to be near those people. He made you one with those people. To do that work, and it's hard work, that is the work. That is the work of God. Number two, 
Because it ain't going to be easy. Rely on the power of the Spirit and the person of Jesus to make that unity possible. Pray about it. I love these sorts of prayers. I think God loves these sorts of prayers. Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to get over this to make that unity possible. And Jesus goes, I know you don't. I know. I know how you're going to do it because I can see the end from the beginning here. I have the wisdom that you don't have, that you require. I don't know how I can heal from this, Jesus. He goes, yes, I know you don't know how you can heal from this. I know how you can heal from this and how you're going to be brought together as one. We don't have peace because of us. He is our peace. Instead of our prayers of weakness, we let his prayer become our prayer. We let what he did to remove hostility, remove our hostilities. We rely on the power of the Spirit and the person of Jesus rather than on our own resources to become one again. Now here's the strength of it. Enter into that reconciliation process with confidence. When you're in conflict with another believer, I want you to think of it this way. Just think. You are unified with them even when you aren't. Start there. You are unified with them even when you aren't because who can undo what Christ has done? So you think you're at odds. You think there's no way to mend this thing. Who are we to undo what Christ has already done? We are already unified from the beginning. So conceivably to me, there are Christians who have killed each other on the battlefield only to discover that they're in the same worship session a few moments later in the presence of God. What's that feeling like? There are Christians who have divorced each other only to find out that they're going to worship God forevermore side by side. We don't work from square one, you know, with this list of 100 wrongs as we go into reconciliation with each other and try to work through each one. We start from the end. We know we will be unified forevermore. And then we go back to that list. And then suddenly when we go in with that kingdom confidence, I'm already unified with you. You're already unified with me. Jesus is our peace. We go back to that list. And a lot of times we find, wow, the list got a lot shorter. Maybe it just evaporated. It's not even there anymore. That's our power for unity one on the cross. That's our power for unity prayed for by Jesus. I understand it's later this morning. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to invite the ministry team to the corners of the room. And we have time again, likely only to sing one song. But maybe even before you sing, you just want to go to somebody on the ministry team and say, this is what the Lord has charged me with. This is the act of unity that I have to step into. This is the relationship I want to pray for healing in. And they want to pray with you. We can sing about, we can talk about the work Jesus has done on the cross. It's another thing to join with the work of Jesus and to do the work of the kingdom. And that comes down to every single relationship in here and those frayed relationships that need mending. We work in those relationships with confidence. We can face anything the society's going to throw at us. We can face anything the culture's going to throw at us. We're going to be one. We're going to be one. So let me pray as we enter into this time of worship. And if you need prayer, please receive prayer as we worship. Lord, we recognize what you've done on the cross to make us one. May we be one just as you prayed. We are one. We are unified. Even those 
relationships that have frayed, even those relationships that are so distant, God, there will be reunion, there will be reconciliation. Let it be on this side of heaven that others may know your gospel, that others may see that we are your disciples. God, the ethic that we're going to love our enemies, how much more the call to bear up, to have patience, to heal with our brothers and sisters. Send us forth as ambassadors of reconciliation, God. May unity be our first priority and may we enter into it with the strength and power you provide knowing the battle is already won. I pray this in your powerful name, you, Jesus, who are our peace. Amen.